to the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 19 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today we'll be interviewing Robin Wasserman, author of the young adult science fiction novel Skinned, about a popular high school girl who dies in a car accident and has her mind transferred to a strange robot body. You know, Robin appeared last month at the New York Review of Science Fiction reading series, and so, you know, we saw her there and saw her read sort of the opening of of her novel, uh, and it sounded very interesting, and so we thought we should have her on the show. And um, we we were saying, you know, we should uh, let people know if you're... uh, if you live in New York or if you ever make it into New York, there are some really good public events uh, that people should try to make it out to, one, one of which is the New York Review of Science Fiction Reading Series that we just mentioned that's monthly, curated by Jim Freund. And we'll have um, links on the show notes to, uh, you know, to, to the schedules and things so you can look up uh, you know, who the upcoming authors are. And then the other big one is the Fantastic Fiction Reading Series at the KGB Bar uh, in East Village, which is curated by Ellen Datlow and Matt Kressel. Uh, that's also monthly. Uh, and actually, there's a, a a listserv called Gotham Lit that you know people can just post uh, upcoming events to. So that's a really good way to find out about stuff that's going on in New York too. And they're just on Twitter as of today. And if you live in another city, like if you live in San Francisco, there's uh, there's sort of an equivalent called SF NSF, which is basically you know just the same deal where you have a couple readers uh, in science fiction or fantasy, and they come and do a reading and you know um, that kind of thing. And so. Um, I expect if uh, you look hard in, in any other major city, you might find something similar, but uh, I'm not aware of others. So if anybody does know of them and, and there's some event like that that you like and you'd like to promote, uh, you know, let us know in the comments. Uh, and if you ever come out to anything in New York, you might see John and I there. Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't know whether that's an incentive or, uh, <laughs> or not, but, uh, you know. Just think how exciting that would be to meet the host of Geek's Guide <laughs> to the Galaxy. Yeah, so we're very... Uh, we're affable. Affable. That's exactly the word I was looking for. Uh, type. So yeah. So say hi to us if you if you see us out and about. And devastatingly handsome too. <laughs> um, and speaking of affable, I just can't wait to get to our interview with Robin Wasserman. All right. Well, let's get her on the phone. Hello. Hi. This is Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, hi. You found me. <laughs> Uh, okay, so first of all, uh, just what were some of your favorite fantasy and science fiction books during your childhood and teenage years? I was really big into sort of all of the people who had died before I was <laughs> born. So I was obsessed with Heinlein and Asimov, and um, I think I read iRobot like a million times, and Stranger in a Strange Land, I practically made a religion around. Um, <laughs> I mean, not a creepy, you know, cannibalistic, multiple spouses having religion, but, you know. Um, and I uh, I think I read a lot of Larry Niven and uh, Ray Bradbury and just basically anyone who wrote any science fiction, say, before 1970, I guess, I read obsessively. How did you get into science fiction in the first place? I've never quite been sure. I know that I read iRobot in elementary school for some kind of school project, and I think that was the first science fiction novel or short story collection that I had ever read because my mother was really into science fiction and was always pushing it on me. So I was like, no, science fiction is clearly the devil if my mother wants me to read it. Um, (laughs) So it had to come forcibly as homework for me to actually allow myself to be exposed to such a thing. Um, And then my aunt and uncle, who are big sci-fi fans, sort of jumped in and and force-fed me some Star Trek in uh, 2001 
and uh, you know handed me my first timeline book. And I think um, I think uh, Ringworld they sort of gave me a pile of mandatory reading, and then it was on from there. So, like, were any of your any of your friends reading science fiction too, or was it just just you? What is this friends thing you? Ah, <laughs> uh, no, I. In the periods of junior high where I actually had friends, none of them were reading science fiction. There was this one girl in my class who also watched Star Trek, and we both sort of kept it top secret. But somehow we found out that we were both watching it. So we would occasionally go on to these, like, psychotic geek rambling conversations about how you could tell if it was going to be a good Next Generation episode based on which characters it focused on. And we came up with all these theories. And, you know, that would be, like, two hours once a month. And then I would never speak of it again to anyone for another couple of months. <laughs> uh, so your novel, Skinned, is about a popular high school girl who dies and wakes up in a robot body. Is this at all autobiographical? <laughs> Um, no, it's, it is, I would say, almost completely not autobiographical, um, although I did actually, um, when I was in junior high, I had scoliosis, and I, I had to wear a brace for a couple of years, so this idea of sort of walking around feeling very stiff and thinking everyone is looking at you like you're Frankenstein, that emotion actually does come from my, my own life, but not the robot part. Uh, so do you think it's actually possible to transfer a person's consciousness into a mechanical medium? I don't know. I, maybe it's the, the optimism that I sort of soaked in when I was a kid reading all these books. But I think that, you know, even now, um, the fact that we can just pour basically everything that's ever happened to us, all of our photographs and basically all of our thoughts and, and daily events of our life and that kind of thing onto a computer, I think, you know, eventually there's going to emerge some kind of software that can take all of that and map our brains and somehow get some version of us into an electronic form. How does the process actually work in the book, and sort of what sort of research did you do? Well, there's a there's a lot of techno babble in the book, but what it comes down to is um, they basically they freeze the brain and then they slice it into very thin slices, um, and then they scan the slices and and somehow render a 3D model using some form of quantum computing, and that's where things get big and all the details are applied. Um, but I, when, I was, when I was researching the book, I did do a little research into um, the different theories for how one might do this, because apparently there is a whole branch of futurism speculation about how you might go about importing consciousness into a machine, and there are various theories of it. And this seemed like the one that would best fit the series, um, especially since the whole sort of first couple chapters are about the physical loss of her body and, and the way that they have basically carved her up and broken her into something that could be put in the machine. So, But apparently there are scientists out there who think that this is the way to go. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about the wider world of Skinned. Uh, what sort of future developments do you imagine uh, or did you imagine in the series? Um, well, it's funny. A lot of people tend to refer to these books as dystopias, and it's not something that I set out to write. I never thought, well, I'll sit down and write the most depressing future that I can think <laughs> of. Actually, I sat down to write the most realistic future that I could think of, and apparently my view of the future is just extremely dark and filled with toxic clouds and such because it really is a dystopia. Um, but what I did was I broke the world into a whole bunch of components, you know, politics and religion and entertainment and socioeconomics and all those things, and I I took sort of the status quo now and the trends that seem to be heading into the future and I pushed them to their logical extremes. So, you know, religious strife now became religious war and sort of mass apocalypses in the Middle East, and pollution now became, you know, global environmental decay, things like that. So you end up with this extremely depressing, stratified world where the wealthy have everything and the poor have nothing, and there's sort of this toxic 
dark, ashy clouds hanging over everything, so you can't see the stars. Um, and, you know, the sort of social networking of today becomes the only way that people interact with the world tomorrow. It's that kind of thing. Um, so you, you wrote a novel called Hacking Harvard. Tell us about that. Well, Hacking Harvard, unlike Skinned, is autobiographical. It's probably the most autobiographical thing I have ever written or will write. It's sort of a, a geek, my fair lady, basically. It's, um, it's about these three super smart, super nerdy sort of hacker kids who decide that for their grand hack, they're going to try to hack the admissions system of Harvard. Um, they're going to try to get the school's biggest slacker into the country's best university. <laughs> um, and so they sort of make this slacker over into the best possible candidate for admission to Harvard. And none, none of those elements are the actual autobiographical elements. There's another character who is sort of the female love interest for one of these geeks, and she is this sort of unpleasant, obsessive, neurotic, type A high school senior who is doing everything she can and selling her soul so that she can get into college. And that, sadly, is the one that's mostly based on me. <laughs> so, so, so you went to Harvard? Yes. <laughs> so I tell people. Uh, so what were some of the best classes you took there um, that helped you with your writing? I was a history of science major, except for the three months that I was an English major before I decided that would be an unqualified disaster. <laughs> um, so I, <laughs> I didn't take any classes that helped me with the actual craft side of my writing, but I did take a lot of classes in um, you, the sort of classes you would call science for poets, I guess. I took this amazing class about the history of astronomy, um, which is actually uh, inspiring a lot of the projects that I'm working on next um, because it sort of was this whole overview of, you know, Aristotelian and, and Renaissance science and sort of the, you know, the birth of natural philosophy and the development of our understanding of the universe and all these grand concepts. And my other favorite class, which I have yet to find a way to write about but is going to be my dream book someday, was a class on the philosophy of quantum physics. So all of that stuff that we think of as pure science fiction, like parallel worlds and time travel and that kind of thing, and, um, you know, studying the ways that actual real-world quantum physicists talk about those as being viable possibilities. And so someday I dream of writing that book. I just haven't found a story to go with it yet. Uh, and you talked about this class on automata? Yes, that that is actually a grad school class that I took because oh. after majoring in the history of science, an eminently practical field, I decided I would go to grad school in the same thing. The first class that I took when I got there was in the history of automata, or the history of mechanical replicas of life, um, which I thought when I signed up for the class, I had no idea what it was going to be about. I figured it would be, you know, we'd be watching The Terminator or something like that. Um, but it turned out the class was about um, the way that people for the last 2,000 years have been building mechanical replicas of life to sort of explore the questions of what life is, sort of trying to figure out the essential qualities of humanity by comparing us to machines. And that is really where the inspiration for Skin came from. Um, because I ended up doing a lot of reading and research into this question of what makes us human and whether it's rational thought or irrational emotion and how we redefine that as machines creep closer and closer to the dividing line between us. And I, I spent a lot of time thinking about what it would mean for a machine to experience emotion and what it would mean for a machine to feel when it couldn't sort of physically feel in the same way that humans do, obviously. And I expected that I was going to end up writing my dissertation on that subject, but somehow it morphed into a novel. Um, and my graduate advisor is still speaking to me, oddly, but he's, he has yet to give me a PhD for the effort. 
Uh, so what are some of the more interesting automata that people have built throughout history? The one that people always seem to enjoy the most hearing about is the defecating duck, which is a late 18th, early 19th century automaton. It was basically a brass duck that was built by a famous scientist automaton maker, and he claimed that it was a mechanical model of digestion. So he would take this thing all over Europe, and uh, you know, hundreds of people would come to see it, and he would stuff food into this duck's mouth, and then everyone would wait a few minutes, and then basically the duck would you know, crap the fruit out the other end, and, you know, the crowds would cheer, and everyone went crazy for it, and it was this amazing thing, and, of course, it turned out that the whole thing was a total fake, because digestion is not actually a mechanical process, as it turns out, um, and he would, like, stuff the duck crap in ahead of time before the show, and then just press a button, and it would pop out when it was ready, um, and that, I, I just, it so encapsulates the absurdity, and the science, and the entertainment, and the craze, and all of that into into one defecating dust and stuff. That is my favorite. Uh, so after college, you worked in book publishing. Uh, what kind of stuff did you work on? I worked on what I suppose you might call the trashiest of the trash books. <laughs> and I say that with love because I enjoyed it, but they were not high-end literary creations. Um, I spent a lot of time working on uh, what we call licensed publishing, which are things like Pokemon books and Bionicle books and Dragon Ball Z books. So I have much more expertise in most of those subjects than anyone over the age of 11 should have. I, I, you know, I can name like my six favorite Pokemon. I know who the various villains in Dragon Ball Z are. Um, I spent a lot of time editing these short biographies of NBA players, which was always very exciting because you never knew which morning you would wake up and find out that one of your subjects had been arrested. <laughs> um, so it was a very exciting professional life. Uh, did that experience uh, working as an editor help you with uh, when it came to writing your own books? I think it did. Um, you know, it certainly helps to know what how the publishing industry works, and it helps to have a sense of what editors are looking for, and also it helps to have a sense of what editors are doing over the course of their day, because as a writer, you know, you're sitting in your apartment in your pajamas waiting to hear from your editor, and every minute passes by and it seems like a year and you know 10 minutes have gone by since your email and you're already at being like where is she why isn't she writing me back and <laughs> after 20 minutes you've decided that she hates you and you should never have sent the email in the first place and after an hour you've decided that like your career is over and you're filling out multiple applications and meanwhile your editor is still in the same meeting she's been in for like two hours and you know, she's got other things on their mind so I think, honestly, I think the biggest help has been just being able to occasionally slow down my panic and realize what's happening on the other side of the phone. But yeah, it was also, you know, it was it was a good experience to, not so much to say, see the mistakes that people made in their writing or, you know, it's not that I picked up writing skills from my editing because, again, I wasn't really editing the type of books that I aspire to write now. But I did see that everybody needs to be edited, and I think that's sort of a big lesson that we extremely insecure writers need to learn because there's a temptation when you turn in your manuscript to your editor and then get it back with like a nine-page editorial letter telling you what's wrong with it. There's a temptation to berate yourself for being a horrible author who, again, should probably start filling out those possible applications. And what being an editor, you know, instills in you and, and what I try to still remember all these years later is that every author, no matter how brilliant or horrible, you know, needs to be edited. That, you know, writing a book is really a collaborative process, and having a respect for all of the parts of that process and all the people involved in it is really the only way to stay sane if you're going to sort of move through it to the finish line. How did you actually make that transition from doing the editing to the writing? 
I did a lot of writing when I was at Scholastic, um, but it was that was actually the kind of books that I was editing. I wrote a lot of, you know, sort of sleepover activity books and most embarrassing moments books and the occasional novelization. I wrote one novelization of this skateboarding movie that I'm extremely proud of because I know nothing about skateboarding <laughs> or the kind of sort of 15-year-old boys that are into it. But I, that was my first work of fiction ever, and I was really excited about it. Um, but eventually I had to um, figure out a way to move beyond that, and that meant convincing myself that I had a story to tell that somebody out in the world would want to read. And it took me a few years to get to that point. You know, my father would always say, well, why don't you just write your own book? And I would say, Dad, you just don't understand how it works. It's not that easy. You just... I can't just write a book and somebody will want to read it and publish it. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, but finally, I just sucked it up and, and, you know, came up with an idea and got up the nerve to show it to somebody. And crazily, in a way that I still do not understand, they actually bought it. And, and the rest is history, as I say. <laughs> you followed up Skinned with two sequels, Crashed and Wired. Uh, did the series progress pretty much according to plan or were there any big surprises that came up um, while you were writing it? The first and second book went totally according to plan, I would say. Although I, I hadn't really... It's not that it was a surprise, but it, it sort of crept up on me how much the nature of the story changed, because the first book is about... It's sort of the fall of the popular girl is a trope, basically. You know, this girl who has everything, suddenly she finds herself with a completely different life and a completely different body, and she has to sort of carve out a new world for herself. So it's a very personal story. And as this trilogy progresses, the scope of the story widens, and the second book is uh, much more about sort of all of the mechs. That's what I call these mechanical teenagers, basically. It's about sort of the divide between all of the mechs and the humans, and it becomes a story of one group against the other and the sort of the religious right moving in. And it's much more of an adventure story and a darkness versus light and less of a personal exploration of her identity and that kind of thing. And I, it's not that I didn't know where the story was going, but I hadn't really stepped back and realized that the type of story I was writing was changing so drastically. And it wasn't until I would say that I was in the middle of writing the second book that I really understood how the third book was going to work and how the thing was going to wrap up. I had planned it out sort of as an emotional arc. I knew where I needed the character to end up, and I knew, you know, I knew who the winners were going to be and who the losers were going to be, but I didn't exactly know how that was going to work within the concrete details. And then, you know, one day I just had sort of the epiphany, and I realized where the whole series had been leading without me even realizing it. And it was what I would like to think, at least, was sort of the perfect twist to wrap up the trilogy and everyone landing exactly where I needed them to be. Okay, so uh, right now there seems to be a lack of YA fiction, particularly for girls that focus on science in the future. Uh, what do you think about that? I don't know. I don't know that I would say that there's a lack of it. I mean, there's certainly not as much futuristic YA fiction as there is, you know, vampire YA <laughs> fiction. I mean, the the number one and two books on the New York Times bestseller list for months now have been about a girl in the future. You know, the Hunger Games trilogy and Alistair Feld's Ugliest Trilogy is still selling strong. And I haven't actually read this book, Incarceron, which I gather is pretty popular, but I think I think there's a female main character in that, too. I actually think, given the sort of explosion of dystopian fiction that has followed in the footsteps of Hungary, and I actually think we're about to see a huge number of books about girls in, in dark, scary futures fighting the forces of evil. I think that's going to be the new vampire. 
I mean, you talked about reading Heinlein and, and Asimov growing up, who kind of depicted futures that look, and, and Star Trek too, I guess, who depicted futures that look appealing and they make people kind of work to create that kind of future. What do, what do you think about the fact that so many of the futures that teenagers are reading about now are, are so dark? You know, that I do find kind of depressing. And obviously I've contributed to it myself. And like I say, it wasn't, it wasn't a conscious decision. It just it, it was me saying, hmm, I wonder how the future is going to turn out, as opposed to me dreaming, oh, I wonder what the most amazing future I could think of would be. Let me write that. And maybe, you know, maybe that says something about the pessimism of our age or something grand like that. I don't know. But I do think that speaking as somebody who read an immense number of books in which the future seemed like this wonderful, promising, utopian place to be and you know, reading books like that gave me this deep and abiding trust in science, you know, maybe too much trust um, in in sort of science and technology and their capacity to rescue us as a society. And I, you know, I think it's sort of a shame that teenagers aren't getting as much of that now that, that they're getting generally these dark, depressing, oppressive views of the future. I mean, I, you know, I'm still sort of looking out the window wondering why I don't have my flying cars or my hoverboards. And I feel like 50 years from now, teenagers are going to be looking out the window thinking like, wow, it is so awesome how they didn't, like, blow up Canada. I thought they were going to. Look at that. There's still sun. Um, And, you know, I... I guess the way to remedy that is to write some books that are hopeful about technology and the possibilities of the future. But, you know, it's a lot harder to do that, I think. It's much as it's often easier to write a villain than it is to write a compelling, you know, good-hearted character, it's certainly easier to write a sort of dark, depressing backdrop to your story, a dystopia to fight against, than it is to create a story set in, you know, this pleasant utopia kind of place that where you're not puncturing the illusion of utopia, but it actually is a great place. It just doesn't, it, it somehow doesn't seem to gel quite as well with the cynical, edgier, young adult ethos, I guess you would say. Maybe it's just because my memories of being a teenager seemed very depressed and oppressive and dystopian, so those kinds of settings seem to meld much better with, my, with the kind of teen stories I'm writing. Have you gotten any interesting feedback from your readers? Yeah, occasionally. I mean, I get a lot of emails that are just like, oh, your series is great. I love it. And obviously, I I love getting emails like that. They make my day. Um, but, you know, sometimes I get sort of more detailed emails that talk about the ways in which they identified with one of the characters in the book or, you know, the emotions seem somehow resonant with them. I Interestingly, I get a lot of feedback from teenagers about how they love the books, but they find the main character really unlikable or bitchy or repellent or, you know, insert your pejorative adjective of choice, and I've heard it about this main character. I guess I find it pretty entertaining because the main character is really selfish and self-indulgent and bitchy and all those things. And in one sense, it's kind of intentional because, you know, as I say, the, the trope of the first book is the fall of the favorite, basically. So she has to start out from this place of being somewhat unlikable and full of herself because, you know, she's pride heading for the fall. On the other hand, she she's like a teenager. I mean, she's much like none of us were these, like, super good-hearted, altruistic, far-sighted people when we were teenagers and we're not now either you know neither is the main character and i i am often entertained and occasionally distressed that she gets so much flack for being the way she is especially because one of the male romantic leads who really is a horrible person and is an absolute asshole and and in many areas of the book seems to have no redeeming qualities whatsoever people often seem to think he's great so there seems to be a lot more latitude for the you know 
super hot romantic bad boy than there is for the female protagonist who's tough and wounded and trying hard but occasionally can't measure up to the sort of acts like a saint at all possible times um, model. So you have this series, uh, Seven Sins, and I I read where you said that uh, one of the characters is heavily based on you, and your editor kept telling you to cut out material about that character (laughs) because nobody cares about that character. Well, it sounds harsh when you say (laughs) that, but yes. Uh, Could you talk about that series maybe a little bit? Um, Yes, the Seven Deadly Sins is a soapy, melodramatic story of seven teenagers living in a really small town it's completely unlike anything I ever experienced when I was in high school because, you know, these teenagers are going out sort of carousing and, and breaking hearts right and left every night. And I spent most nights, you know, watching movies in my friend's basement or like hanging out in Barnes & Noble like the wild suburban teenagers that we were. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's it's a little wish fulfillment and a little um, a little college melodrama sent back into high school. And um, it was a lot of fun to write. It was the first thing they were the first novels that I ever wrote. So looking back at them is sort of like looking back at a record of myself becoming a writer. And for the record, I have to say, there is one character there that, that is, many of the characters are sort of based on my worst traits, but there is one character there who is based largely on me. And, you know, I've gone all over the internet saying that in interviews, and the series is actually getting turned into a Lifetime movie next month. And they have in some ways remained very true to the to the books, but that particular character has been turned into this sort of incredibly high-strung, nasty, bigly skanky, evil girl. Um, so I just want to put it on the record that the movie version of that <laughs> character is not based on me in any way whatsoever. So, you know, I've been looking at your, your website and, and Twitter feed, and they're pretty funny. Um, is there generally a lot of humor in your fiction as well, or does it tend to be all more serious stuff? Um, you know, I wish that I could say that all of my fiction was hilariously funny because, <laughs> well, first of all, that would be awesome. But second of all, um, it's always better, I think, when you're doing any kind of public reading to have a passage that, you know, is going to make everyone laugh hysterically with you as opposed to at you. Um, and um, Hacking Harvard actually is at least I intend it to be funny. I don't know if I've actually succeeded, but, you know, it's a lot of guy banter and a lot of like, oh, you know, is Battlestar better than Star Trek or vice versa? And I got to throw in, you know, a bunch of sort of hijinks from my college years. Um, so so that one is, I think, reliably entertaining. Skinned, unfortunately, or, you know, fortunately, if you have no sense of humor, is a lot more serious and a lot darker. And there, there was less opportunity to be, you know, playful with the with the hijinks of the characters. Um, so there's not a lot of like, oh, look, I accidentally pulled off my robot arm. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't come up very often. But, um, you know, there's, I guess there's the occasional banter between characters. But I'm, I'm and, and actually my next book is pretty dark, too. I'm really hoping to go back and write something that's a little lighter and, and has a little more space to play around. Um, because I do like to think that I'm, I'm occasionally a little funny, but it's... Uh, it's not it's not showing up in these books, which is not to say these books are humorless and depressing and horrible. They're, you know, exciting and adventurous and, and thrilling and romantic and all of those things. They're just not they're just not funny. <laughs> um, so what are you working on now and uh, what should people keep an eye out for in the future? Um, I'm about to start a new book, which I can actually just now officially talk about. 
called The Book of Blood and Shadow, and I'm very excited about it. It's a, it's sort of a departure for me. It's a, um, it's a murder mystery uh, crypto thriller, I guess I like to call it. It's about secret societies and ancient devices and um, Renaissance manuscripts and sort of takes the characters on sort of a scavenger hunt across the globe and um, is lets me do um, a lot of fun stuff with um, faith and science and um, God and, and all the things that I'm really excited about and have already done a lot of research about in my former academic life, so I've got a good start on that front. So that's what I'm diving into right now, and it's it's definitely a big change from building a future world to sort of going back and trying to reconstruct the past. All right, well, Robin Wasserman, thanks for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, thanks so much for having me. This was fun. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Robin Wasserman for joining us on the show. So actually, you know, when I when I heard about Robin's book, I was really one of the reasons I was interested in it was because it was it's it's sort of young adult science fiction, and it it has sort of seemed to me that in my lifetime that the field has not done as good a job as as we could be doing of of sort of doing outreach and getting new readers, particularly young readers, interested in science fiction, you know, science fiction in particular as opposed to, to fantasy and horror. And so, uh, so it was kind of fun for me to see that there is this new YA science fiction book. Although, uh, you know, it sounds like I'm not keeping up on YA as much as I, as much as I might be, because Robin was uh, saying that there's this whole uh, boom. It's kind of funny, you know, I haven't even gotten around to reading the Hunger Games. I think of that as a new book, and there's already a post-Hunger Games boom, you know, boom <laughs> of stuff just like it. So, uh, so that's good to hear. So, yeah, I mean, I just hope that there is a lot more YA science fiction. Uh, than there has been, you know, for the past uh, 10 or 20 years. Right, yeah, no, there has been a lot more recently, and it has been encouraging. Um, it makes it a little harder to keep up with what all the good new science fiction is, because a lot of the good new science fiction is actually being published as YA now. And most of this stuff is like, I mean, you know, any adult SF reader is just as likely to enjoy that stuff as, as you know, teenagers are. And, I mean, because they're all really well-written and sophisticated. Well, I mean, they're not all well-written, obviously, but, I mean, they're all – they tend to be pretty sophisticated. And so it's like they're sophisticated enough for an adult audience, uh, definitely. And, uh, I mean, like examples uh, such as Robin and, uh, like, Scott Westerfeld is the other sort of primary example. Um, you know, he's got this series – yeah, it's a series now um, called, uh, you know, The Ugly Series. And, uh, you know, it was originally a trilogy and then it made four books, so – you know, it's a, it's a, it's like set in this dystopian future where you know where people are sort of uh, required to undergo this process which makes them beautiful like a, at a certain age and and so before you have this done you're called an ugly and then after that you're called a pretty and and it's sort sort of about this uh, this teenager who uh, is sort of dreading the the thought of becoming a pretty and then you know all this stuff is revealed about it and it, it's really cool. Uh, I, I wrote a review of it on Intergalactic Medicine Show when I was reviewing for them. So if you're interested in detail what I thought of it, you can go check out that review. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. But, you know, really, really great science fiction. I mean, a lot of fun, a lot of action, um, you know, great characterization. And, you know, I mean, Scott Westerfeld's great. So, I mean, it'd be hard to go wrong with him if you wanted to try, you know, some of this YASF that's being published right now. And, uh, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about Robin's book is that, you know, it really is hardcore SF. I mean, like Hunger Games and even um, the Ugly Trilogy to a certain degree. Um, I mean, you know, they're dystopian. So, I mean, that's a lot of the SF element to it, you know. And, the, and so there's not as much science as there would be in like a, a traditional SF novel. 
I'm glad they get dystopian stuff, post-apocalyptic stuff, that kind of science fiction in YA as well, because, you know, that can lead those readers to, you know, the other stuff and get, get more people interested in science fiction as well. But there still is a, a bit of a lack in you know, sort of the really sort of techie and or science heavy science fiction being published for the YA audience. But, you know, it's definitely getting better in recent years. And, and there's a lot more stuff available like uh, like Skinned. Uh, but, you know, sort of every like week after week, we interview authors, and I'm, I'm always curious to hear what kind of books got them interested in science fiction. In, and we just hear over, over and over again, Asimov and Heinlein. And, mm-hmm. you know, Robin was talking about how growing up, everything she read was from before she was born. And, and I was mm-hmm. kind of the same way. And I do hope that with this, you know, boom of YA stuff that more people in the future will you know be reading stuff that's more current uh, as, as, as teenagers. You know, you and I both sort of grew up with the Robert Asper and Myth series. There was a lot of stuff like that for fantasy in YA at the time. And, and I mean, I think that's still true to a large degree. I mean, there's still a lot of there's a lot of other fantasy uh, out there for, you know, for YA readers. I mean, you know, we interviewed Holly Black I and mean, she's one of the leading uh, writers in, in, in that aspect of YA. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it would be it would be great if uh, if, if that was the case. And, and you know, uh, more of that was available to you know younger readers. OK, but so our main topic for today is going to be mind transfer and mind uploading and basically any way that your mind ends up somewhere besides your own body. It's such a great concept and I can still remember the first story along those lines that I read. We, we read it in school. It's, it's about, you know, the sort of a criminal has been captured by the police and a interrogator comes in to interrogate him and in the course of this interrogation the criminal reveals that he can swap minds with people and of course the interrogator doesn't believe him but at the end of the story of course the criminal swaps minds with the interrogator and so the uh, the criminal escapes, and the interrogator himself ends up going off to prison. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I just thought that was such a cool story. And it's kind of funny how later I would read lots and lots of stories that had mind swapping stuff like that that were a lot more sophisticated and that were written long before that one. But it's just funny how the first time you encounter an idea like that can just make such a big impression on you. Well, I mean, what story was that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it was. <laughs> It made such a big impression on you that you don't remember. What well, I remember the story. I don't remember yeah, right. the author's name. I mean, okay. it was it was in one of those kind of like um, like Read magazine or something, you know, that were produced specifically for the classroom. Yeah. Um. So, I, I actually, if if anyone knows what story that is, uh, I would be curious to find out. But it's I I, I don't think I'm ever gonna know. <laughs> right. No, I mean, I think uh, this is an interesting trope, especially when you um, when you phrase it as sort of broadly as you did. You know, it, it's basically the same exact trope, but you can treat it as science fiction or fantasy just like equally. I mean, I think there's probably equal numbers of examples in which they use that trope in a fantasy setting versus a science fiction setting. I'm much more interested in in the science fictional setting, even if I have a lot of doubts about the viability of it. I mean, which we're going to discuss a little bit later, I'm sure. It, it seems to me just kind of natural, too, that writers and readers would want to think about swapping minds because that's kind of basically what you're doing whenever you read fiction Mm. is you know your mind is being transferred into the head of somebody else and experiencing what it's like to be in somebody else's uh, consciousness it seems to me that the big issue with mind transference is this issue of continuity of consciousness Mm. and transferring your mind versus just copying your mind and it seems to me that a lot of science fiction is really talking about copying your mind but treats it as if it's talking about transferring your consciousness. Yes. And so, I mean, a lot of times you'll hear people phrase this as, you know, if you knew that there was a perfect copy of yourself who had all your memories and your personality and everything, would you put a gun to your head? 
secured in mm-hmm. the knowledge that you would continue on in the copy? Mm-hmm. And of course, the answer is no, no, because it would be it would just be a copy. It wouldn't be you. But sort of that same kind of logic applies, it seems to me, and to a lot of people to the, the transporters in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's not clear exactly how they work, but if they're breaking your body up into constituent atoms and reassembling them elsewhere, you know, is your consciousness making the trip or is it just creating an effective copy of you somewhere else? Right. Yeah. No, I don't buy the transport at all. That's a, that's a total death machine. <laughs> You know, I mean, they they prove it basically like there's episodes where I mean, there's an episode where Riker gets copied. You know, there's like a duplicate of him left on the surface and, you know, a different version of Riker makes it onto the ship. And so like basically a clone of himself is made at that point. And so he's able to when they meet up, he's able to see, you know, how his life could have turned out differently. Like if he never made it off the planet, you know, because there was like a transporter accident or whatever, you know. But uh, I mean, that right there sort of proves that it's like okay yeah i mean <laughs> i would never get into a transporter that's crazy i mean one of the best known examples of so of an author dealing explicitly with this idea is james patrick kelly and his story think like a mm-hmm. dinosaur which is a great great story and it, it's it's a similar thing where people are transported across the galaxy by alien technology and uh you know it leaves behind a copy and so the uh the main character is kind of the guy who has to dispose of the copy and it's about sort of what happens in his life when the thing goes goes really wrong and makes really uh, obvious to him the some of the the problems with this uh, technology. Yeah, no, I mean that's a that's a great example of it. Yeah, I mean I'm glad you I'm glad you sort of introduced the topic the way you did just because like I mean you basically explained exactly how I feel about this trope and it, at least in a science fictional setting it's really fun to read about but. Like, I just have so many issues with it that it, it, it's always, like, sort of bothering me. Like, I've interviewed a couple different science fiction writers who have used it in their work. And, like, I just – I always have to, like, ask them about that because, like, I'm kind of curious, like, do they really think that it's – you know, that you're making a copy or are you successfully sort of, you know, having this continuity of consciousness transfer? And, and I mean, I just never buy it. It seems like there's been a lot of recent examples, too. Like, you know, Richard Morgan, uh, who wrote uh, Altered Carbon and, and Broken Angels and, and the rest of the Takashi Kovacs series. The the main sort of uh, science fictional element in that, I mean, it's sort of this dystopian future again. But, like, at least in Altered Carbon, it's kind of a Blade Runner-esque future. But uh, the sort of main technological advancement is that everybody has what they call a cortical stack implanted in, in, in their sort of attached to their spinal cord, you know, near their brain. And um, so that makes a copy of everything that you know is in your brain and so like if you get killed you know they can retrieve your your memories and whatnot from the cortical stack and, and just put you in a new body which they call resleeving. uh so it's very it's a very cool device to have like a, a really interesting story because you know you can have your your hero can get killed you know because then he's not going to really die he's going to come back and you know in a in a he's going to decant and, and end up in a new body it kind of makes the idea of like video game seem you can actually play a video game and have it be closer to reality because like in a video game, you know, one of these games where, you know, you have multiple lives, you know, you, you fall off a cliff and you die and then you come back, you know, that suddenly makes it like, oh, it's like kind of like sleeping. I mean, that's kind of cool. You know, it makes it less of an artificial um, construct of, of a video game because I have so many issues with it. I've never really enjoyed the trope as much as I think I would otherwise. Um, even in Richard Morgan's books, um, there's a point where there's a copy made of of a character you know, so one of the characters, um, he has his cortical stack, but then there's like a copy of him made and put into another body. So there's like two of the same exact person. So like, for instance, if, you know, you were to ask him, well, we made this copy and put it in this other body. Is, is that you? 
would he be cool with that? I mean, I don't know. I guess in the in the context of the of the milieu, they they seem to be, but this doesn't seem like the same person at all to me. I mean, the moment you both exist at the same time, it's no longer even possibly you. Well, like you know, John and I went to this um, event in New York where it was kind of a Star Trek captain face-off panel discussion, and they showed a clip. I've never actually seen this entire episode, but it was an episode of uh, Star Trek Voyager where there was a transporter malfunction when they were trying to beam uh, Tuvok and Neelix somewhere. Mm. And this was resulted in kind of their molecules getting scrambled and a new being called Tuvix, who was kind of a, a combination of the two of them being created. And so finally they figure out how to fix the problem and, you know, get, get Neelix and Tuvok back. And, and this Tuvix person doesn't want to die. And he gives this impassioned plea for his own life, which they ignore. <laughs> and then, you know, Neelix and Tuvok are back and everybody's, you know, happy, except, you know, they had to kill Tuvix. But, you know, what you going to do? But then... <laughs> Got to break a few eggs. <laughs> but then are you... I mean, it seems to me in that situation, what's actually happening is that Neelix and Tuvok died mm-hmm. in the creation of Tuvix. And now you're killing Tuvix to create new copies of Neelix and Tuvok. Right. So you're actually just killing more people. You know, exactly. it's not just like, oh, they're back and everything's fine. And and the thing is, they could have made copies of Neelix and Tuvok at any time. They got like the Star Trek transporter has a pattern buffer that stores patterns. They could make infinite copies of like everybody who's ever gone through a transporter, it seems like. I mean, they've done that in other times, too. So, I mean, well, I mean, we can't try to make sense of the Star Trek transporter. <laughs> I mean, you know, as... Uh, as our friend Ron Moore has said, uh, when they write Star Trek scripts, they sort of write out the story, and then when they get to a technological part, they're like, they put brackets and say, like, insert techno babble here, and they let some science nerd fill in the the science and just make it fit with the story. So if you're going to try to rationalize how um, you know Star Trek technology works, it's going to be pretty difficult. But I was thinking about the Tuvix example, and it was kind of making me wonder, okay, well, what if they were to like have the transporter? Like, what if you were to transport the left half of one guy's brain and swap it with just the left left half of the other guy's brain well you know if you were experiencing the consciousness of one of those guys when that happened how crazy would that be (laughs) uh yeah i don't know i think death would be involved in that experiment you think that would wipe out your whole uh yeah your whole consciousness yeah what if it was just like 10 percent of your brain got written over by the transporter with somebody else's brain Mm. yeah i don't know that's an interesting uh question because, you know, there's this sort of thought experiment, you know, you know, there's this issue of can you really transfer your consciousness from your brain into, say, a mechanical medium and actually maintain that continuity of consciousness? Mm-hmm. And so one one example I heard of, you know, how that might be possible is there's is they were saying, well, you know, your brain is made up of all these different cells. Um, so what if you were to have a mechanical version of just one of them? You know, it performed all the same functions as, as one of them. And say you were to take out one brain cell and replace it with a mechanical brain cell, you know, that wouldn't completely destroy your consciousness, right? And what if you were to take out another brain cell and replace it with another mechanical substitution? And you were to just keep doing that one by one. At the end of that process, would you just have a mechanical brain and your consciousness would have made that transition? Yeah, that's the most like fascinating example of this that I've ever heard. Like, And I'm kind of sad that I've never run into a story that uses that, but... That seems to me like that's like the closest we could possibly get to that sort of consciousness transferring going on just because like I could actually see that working. I mean, I don't know. It would certainly be a scary thing to try. (laughs) 
But, you know, that kind of reminds me a little bit. I, I mentioned this story on the show once before, but um, a story by Greg Ian called Learning to Be Me, in which, you know, everybody has these um, basically like a cortical stack, like an altered carbon, but they they have those things implanted at birth and at some point in their lives they transfer over to it and so it's like you basically you shut off the brain and you just go with that because it's been making a copy of everything you've you've done in your life since birth and and the point of the story is that the narrator is just like having a lot of fear over making this changeover and and i actually found the story like really horrifying to some degree because i was like i would totally freak out about doing that but this idea that you're talking about of replacing the brain cells one by one, that kind of makes me think of that just because there was, seems like there would be kind of a similar changeover happening, except that it would be so gradual that, like, I don't know that you could possibly, like, you wouldn't notice. I mean, but it really does raise a lot of questions of, like, what, you know, what are we? Like, what is the essence of a, of a person that, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it freaks me out when I think about it. But, you know, I, I, I'd love to know the answers. I mean, it's... Uh, I, th- I mean, it's kind of like one of the things like why we read science fiction, because, you know, sort of mimetic fiction doesn't ask these kind of questions it do- or it, if it does, it never offers up any answers um, in science fiction. At least I think like it asks a lot of questions and it sort of at least provides some, you know, hints at answers you know, or it sort of puts us on the road to, to coming up with our own answers. I mean, another thing we, we had talked about is that the cells of your body are constantly dying and new cells are being created. And after eight years or something, your body has completely replaced every cell so that, you know, if you're an adult now, there's not a single cell of your body that's the same that was there, you know, when you were born. And so how is it that you're still the same person, if not a single bit of matter is the same as it once was? And, and are you the same person? I mean, I think that that's kind of a... This, this actually, speaking of things that freak you out, I mean, this used hmm. to really bug me when I was a, a teenager, and I spent a long time thinking about it, and I've never really come to any uh, satisfactory answer. But, you know, we've been talking about, well, does continuity of consciousness maintain when you go through a transporter or replace parts of your brain and things like that? But I think that that raises the question, you know, is there continuity of consciousness anyway? Mm-hmm. Um, because if you think about it, I mean, for all you know, right, you're a robot, and all of your memories were programmed into you. And when you woke up this morning, that was the first time. You know, mm-hmm. they just switched you on this morning, you know, and, and everything that you remember never actually happened. You know, and, and so if that happened every day, say, you know, every day a different consciousness woke up in your body with all of your memories, but it was a different person, it was a different actual, you know, sentience every day. And then it makes you think, well, what if moment by moment that's true, that your brain is just throwing up consciousness millisecond by millisecond and each consciousness lasts for a millisecond and has access to all the memories that are there but only is sort of you know like a flash of existence and then fades away and it's just this constant like fireworks of different people in effect inhabiting your brain mm-hmm. but so i just googled this recently to try to figure out you know if anyone else is talking about this and i, I found one I, I just did it quickly you know maybe there's more stuff out there but i just came across kind of this interesting discussion where people had, had brought this up. And this one person was saying, you know, well, maybe, you know, maybe this, this sense of identity that we have, because, you know, a lot of, there's a big debate in philosophy over whether we have free will or not, or whether that's just an illusion. And I wonder if identity is just an illusion hmm. too. And this, this guy makes the same point. He says, maybe identity is just an illusion manufactured by our brains as a, as a sort of survival mechanism, right? Because if I had the intuitive perception that I was not going to be sticking around very long, I wouldn't bother saving money for the future or anything that Mm -hmm. that my whole survival value is built upon the presumption that I'm going to be here to suffer the consequences of my actions. So I don't know. (laughs) 
it's just yeah it's just really weird to to think about stuff like that uh, I mean, you, know, you and I are both atheists, and so you know we don't have that sort of notion of having a soul. And 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 I mean, I'd actually be kind of curious to talk to a, a religious person who's also you know interested in science and whatnot, and believes you know sort of maybe a religious scientist, you know, you know who understands like sort of how the brain works and whatnot, and 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 find out from them, you know, well, well, what do you think? I mean, because obviously you believe that we have a soul, and so you know if you're going to do some sort of consciousness transfer, how does that you know work? You know, but this topic reminds me of, uh, you know, Robert J. Sawyer um, has a book that actually deals with this topic very specifically um, called MindScan, in which, you know, there's consciousness transfers and like that. But bringing up the mention of souls reminds me of his other book um, called The Terminal Experiment, in which um, scientists sort of created an experiment to try to prove that the existence of a soul. It's interesting how, if there is such a thing as a soul, I mean, obviously, everything that we're talking about, like, we're not even mentioning that. So, I mean, it, it must it must be completely impossible then if there is such a thing as a soul to just transfer the consciousness out of a brain because then you're not addressing the soul factor. No, I was, yeah, I was thinking about that this afternoon. Like, if there's a soul, I'm not sure whether it makes it easier mm. or harder. I mean, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I mean, maybe you could just, maybe there's a technology that could transfer the soul. I mean, yeah. I mean, because, but I mean, the soul is supposedly immaterial. So, how would material things interact with it? But, yeah, actually, you know what? I mean, maybe because of that, it's like if, if there was such a thing as a soul, if you if you sort of successfully transfer the you know the consciousness, then the soul would sort of, sort of migrate over, and that would sort of be the the magic bullet that you need to make it work to have that continuity of consciousness, you know. But I was kind of wondering, like, <laughs> like if the soul is completely immaterial, how is it tethered to your body at all, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you just walk across the room, why is your soul not just left behind? Right, right. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> just I don't weird. know. That's that's a good question. But I mean, just speaking of of the soul and and heaven, you know, that kind of brings up the issue of heaven. And you know, for for people like us who are complete philosophical materialists, it's kind of funny because this whole idea of uploading your mind is kind of like the atheist equivalent, you know. Huh. And it's it's yeah, kind yeah. of been mocked as being like the rapture of the nerds, the, huh. this whole you know super techno future kind of thing. And but so in a lot of movies, you'll see. Or, or, or books, you know, you'll see that whole civilizations have uploaded their minds into some gigantic hive mind kind of thing, and they just seem to be floating around in light, all blissed out and stuff. And I don't know, that's never really appealed to me. I mean, mm-hmm. kind of like heaven has never really appealed to me. I mean, if I could just hang out on, I'm, I'm perfectly content hanging out on Earth if I could just have good health and enough to eat and stuff like that. You know, I'd, I'd rather do that than, than just float around in light all the time. <laughs> it sounds kind of boring. But I mean, I think the idea of like this technological sort of version of heaven, it, it, it does seem pretty cool. But because of all the issues I have with the idea of the continuity of consciousness, I just don't believe it would work. I mean, if I had the option of like, you know, just you're OK, well, you're going to die or you can have this happen. And maybe there's some chance that, you know, your consciousness will actually live. I mean, like, oh, OK, well, I guess I'll try it. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> like I, I'm going to wait to push the button until the last second before death, you know, uh, but the idea of like the Christian heaven, like, I mean, it, it doesn't sound particularly appealing, but the idea of the technological version, you know, obviously that could be, that could be anything. I mean, you know, we could be living in that right now and we wouldn't know. I mean, that's kind of like the idea of the matrix, you know, but yeah, I mean, it, I think it's appealing because I, I mean, I just don't want to die. That's all. I mean, I, any, any kind of alternative sounds pretty great to me that doesn't involve, you know, ceasing to exist. Well, yeah, no, I mean, compared to total annihilation, pretty much anything sounds like a pretty good deal but um i mean even just having a co- like like people are like well if you could make a perfect copy of yourself which would have mm-hmm. all your memories and stuff would you put a gun to your head right. well no but mm-hmm. 
if I were gonna if I was gonna die anyway, I would be happier to die knowing that there was a perfect copy of me that was gonna keep going and continue right. doing the work I think is important and continue to be there for the people I care about and stuff. Right. So even if there isn't a continuity of consciousness kind of mind transfer, you know, a, a just sort of non continuity of consciousness personality transfer would be still, you know, pretty cool. Right. Um, well, I mean, imagine how great that would be just for the world, like to like have every great, great mind preserved indefinitely that we could sort of ask questions whenever we want. I mean, that's certainly been explored in, in certain science fiction before. But like, you know, like say, like get Stephen Hawking and, and you know, every 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 sort of contemporary scientific genius and, you know, get that copy of them made so that, you know, we can continue to go back to that great mind again and again. And as technology advances, we still have the benefit of their thinking. Like in, in Alistair Reynolds' Revelation Space Universe, mm -hmm. he has what he calls alpha-level and beta-level simulations, which I think is a really sort of useful way to think about this. But, you know, the alpha-level simulations are the sentient ones, and the beta-level si simulations aren't. But so you, could, you would have like a Stephen Hawking simulation, and you could talk to him, and you would say everything that Stephen Hawking might say, but it wouldn't actually be conscious, right? Mm -hmm. um, another book I kind of wanted to talk about was Killing People by David Brin. Oh, mm-hmm. And so uh, in this one, he sort of imagines that you can copy yourself and then the copies can go out and do stuff and have adventures and, you know, do boring work maybe that you don't want to do. And then at the end of their lifespan, they can come back and you can kind of download their memories back into your head so you can live multiple lives in parallel. And so like it has a great opening where, you know, it starts out and it's from the point of view of one of these really kind of cheap, very temporary copies. And he's learned a big secret and he's trying to make it back to... um you know, to the main guy so he can download the memories, but he di ends up dying. And so as, as the story really gets going, the main character still has no idea that this horrible conspiracy is unfolding. One of the other examples that I've always kind of liked is, uh, you know, in the Dune universe, uh, there's, there's a sort of cyborg called a Cymec, which is, uh, you know, sort of a, a robot body that you sort of take the whole brain and nervous system out of a, out of a body and you put it into this, uh, into this cyborg. And then, you know, the, there's like sort of fluids and nutrients and stuff to keep the biological part of the cyborg alive. Uh, I mean, the, the focus of Dune is not on this, obviously. So, I mean, it's sort of a minor aspect of it, but I always thought that was kind of cool. And somewhat believable that I, I like I could see like if you're taking the the whole, you know, meat out of the body, you know, the whole brain meat out of the body and including the nervous system and whatnot, and you put it into some other medium like that to me, I can believe that. Like, I mean, if I had to make a choice like that, I could make that choice. I think I'd take that gamble. The the consciousness copying we we're talking about before, like, you know, no. But I mean, this like this seems like it's a viable option to me. Um, you know, we we just mentioned in the last show uh, how in RoboCop two they kind of do the same thing um, with the Kane robot. Um, you know, they take they take the whole brain and nervous system out of the out of the body and they and they sort of put it in this robot. You know, I'm I'm rereading Gene Wolfe's book of the New Sun right now, and and just last night uh, I was reading the section in sort of the Lictor where he meets uh, Typhon, who's sort of a um, an evil overlord from the distant past who was kind of dehydrated and, and he, he's just been brought back and he's a, a really sort of fit guy with two heads, um, only one of which talks. And so it turns out that the, the talking head is actually the original head of this ruler Typhon and he's uh, had it grafted onto the shoulder of his healthiest slave hmm. and um, his doctors had originally suggested, well, they could just take his brain out and put his brain into the body of, of this slave. Um, and his consciousness would transfer that way. And, and Typhon says that he was afraid if he did that, 
that people wouldn't follow his orders anymore because they were mm. used to his face, you know, mm-hmm. used to obeying his face. And so he wanted mm-hmm. to preserve his face, even if it wasn't necessary for the, for mm-hmm. the transfer. And so the plan was to put his, uh, his head on this body and then sort of switch all the nerve, do surgery to switch all the nerve endings around. So, you know, he goes from being kind of the passenger head to the driver head. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they were going to take the other head off, but <laughs> circumstances intervened. So he was left kind of midway through the process with two heads. That is awesome, by the way. I just have to say that. I mean, and uh, and if you know, if anybody out there hasn't read Book of the New Sun yet, I mean, really, there's all kind of like crazy stuff in that book, like that. I mean, it's actually four books, but if that doesn't make you want to read it, nothing will. But I mean, that's just seriously, just go read that book. <laughs> sort of a, a less notable example, I guess, mm. is the the one I want to talk about next is the Steve Martin movie, The Man with Two Brains. <laughs> have you ever? Did you ever see this? No. But yeah, that's definitely a little, uh, not, not, not quite as literary uh, and highly respected as Book of the New Sun. But I, I mean, I saw this when I was a kid, so I only have really vague memories of it. But it, I, as I remember it, at some point, Steve Martin's brain ends up in a vat in some mad scientist's laboratory or something. And he's able to communicate with this other brain on the on the table, who's, uh, you know, a, a, it's a woman's brain. And they kind of fall in love with each other. And so finally, he gets back into a body. And so he wants to rescue her. Um, but of course, he needs a body to put to put this brain <laughs> into that he's fallen in love with. And in the story, there's this really attractive, really nasty woman, and he figures that she's a good candidate, you know, for a little brain replacement. And so he goes through all these uh, <laughs> all this trouble to to acquire this really attractive body for this brain that he's fallen in love with. Um, and then at the end, he sort of comes home, and she's there, and she's gains a lot of weight, and she says, "Oh, I did I not mention I'm a compulsive overeater?" <laughs> And, you know, he doesn't care because, you know, he's in love with her. Mm. He, he loves her for her, her mind, you know, <laughs> and that's sort of the happy ending of, of the story. Right. That, that reminds me of, of other uh, movie treatments that uh, have employed the, this trope in the sort of fantastic setting. But, you know, there's Freaky Friday, which is, uh, you know, the more recent example um, uh, where, you know, the sort of what it's, it's like a mom trades places with a teenager. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, so but. When Dave and I first discussed that we were bringing up this episode, I was like, oh, we have to mention Vice Versa, um, the, the classic 80s <laughs> movie starring Judge Reinhold and um, Fred Savage. Like, I mean, I must have seen this movie like 100 times like on HBO when I was a kid, um, as, as I saw every movie on HBO, you know, 100 times. But, you know, it's like in that movie, uh, you know, the father and son end up changing bodies. They switch bodies uh, uh, because of some artifacts, you know, some ancient artifact. And, uh, you know, the there's there's nefarious villains who are trying to get the artifact back for their own nefarious purposes uh, throughout the whole movie. Um, but then in the meantime, you know, there's comedy, the son acting like a grown up and uh, like the son body acting like a grown up and, you know, vice versa, as the movie implies. I don't know. I mean, I'm. I'm pretty sure it's a terrible movie but you know i sure liked it when i was a kid it's just one of those heartwarming stories where everyone in the end ends up back where they were and and learns a valuable lesson which is (laughs) that being an adult sucks just as much as being a kid yes exactly so uh i just wanted to end on this 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 story you know when robin was talking about writing her book hacking harvard it reminded me of of something that happened when i was when i was in high school that i just completely forgotten about but uh, there was this one time when I was sitting in the um, the computer lab and the kid sitting next to me who was in you know computer class with me said, like, hey, look at this. I've broken into the school system. And I look at his computer and he's just like looking through everybody's grades. And he's like, yeah, I could do I could change anyone's grades here, you know. And that's how I got into college. <laughs> True story. No, no, he didn't actually. That's not actually how I got into college. But but so he was showing me his, uh, you know, that he had broken into the school system. And it's actually, it's really easy if any kids out there want to try it. (laughs) 
I firmly uh, order you not to, but but all you have to do is um you know install a program on the computer that um, records all the keystrokes, and then as some as soon as some teacher uses their login, then you have their login and password, and you can just get into anything. It's called a keylogger if you want to Google it. <laughs> and so 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 you know we had just you know he'd just broken into anywhere, and he's kind of showing us, and we're kind of just exploring different files and stuff. And so he had also broken into the uh, the kind of um you know we're all in this computer class together. And he had kind of broken into the administrator account of the teacher. And we're just kind of poking around in there, seeing what we can do. And this teacher, I mean, he was actually one of the better teachers I had. He was, he was actually pretty cool. But he, he had this quirk where if you said sucks, he would just completely lose his temper. You know, hmm. if you're like, that sucks, you're just like, don't say that. And so, so we're just poking around in this directory. And, and I'm kind of like, you know, you, you know, the directories in, in DOS, they can only be eight letters long. So I'm like, what can you write that's eight letters long? <laughs> I'm like, hmm, how about Mr. G sucks? And we're all like, ha, 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 <laughs> And then, uh, you know, and, and we had made all sorts of directories like that and stuff. And then I was like, all right, let's get rid of this stuff. And so I say, you know, remove directory. And it's like access denied. And <laughs> uh, and we're like, oh, my God. You know, and we could not figure out how to <laughs> how to get rid of all this, like, vandalism kind of stuff we had done. Well, I guess he wasn't that great a teacher, huh? <laughs> and so then, you know, so so we go into class. And he knew it had to be someone from that class <laughs> because of how the permissions and stuff were set up. And so he's like, you know, all right, so, you know, who did it? And we're all just like silent, you know. And he's like, we're, I'm just going to sit here until someone confesses. I don't care. We'll sit here all week doing nothing. And we're all just sitting there, you know. <laughs> and so for like three days, we would just come to class every day and just like sit there all class long. And, uh, and he would be, you know, he would be like, so, Chris, have anything you want to tell me? And Chris would be like, I, I don't know what's going on. I'm, I, I couldn't break in anywhere. I'm failing this class, you know? And he's like, hmm. And he's like, Dave, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, why, why, wait, what happened? Somebody like <laughs> left a directory that says like, Mr. G sucks. Why, why would I even want to do that? That's so immature. <laughs> and so he was like, was, this went on for days. And finally he just gave up, you know, he's, he's like, uh, you know, all right, well, we have to move on with the class, but I'm not happy. And uh, so, so we got away with that one in the end. And well, you just fessed up to it. I hope the statute of limitations on uh, computer tomfoolery has expired. Yeah, I hope so. But I just want to say, like, Mr. G, if you're listening, you don't suck at all. <laughs> we were just kidding, you know. Except, I guess, when it comes to interrogations, I guess you do kind of suck at that. But <laughs> <laughs> aside from that, you were a very cool teacher. And I'm really sorry that I did that. And that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. If you'd like to share your thoughts about any of the topics we discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. Just go to Tor.com and click on Podcasts, and then Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, Episode 19, and post a comment there. And be sure to join us next week when we'll interview Eli Kintish, author of the nonfiction book Hack the Planet, about some of the highly ambitious and extremely risky geoengineering schemes that are being proposed to address climate change. See you then. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com. For this episode's show notes or to subscribe to this podcast, visit Tor.com and click on Podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit JohnJosephAdams.com or DavidBarrCurtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Deadspill 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.